Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Welcome back to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. How's everyone doing? Oh my gosh, I am thinking about all of you in Texas and Kansas and uh, I don't know, everywhere where there's no heat and no power. And I am really, really um, praying for your safety and for um, the swift return of power and heat to those of you who are um, in really dangerous freezing conditions right now. And boy, I hope this finds you well and brings you um, a little bit of warm comfort from, uh, from me in LA to you. So today is um, another episode of the abuse mini-series, <laughs> as we're calling it. Um, and today I'm bringing back my friend, Leslie Morgan Steiner, to talk about domestic violence. Um, so, But before we get to that, I want to let you know about something that we have brewing in my community. Um, as many of you know, I have a Facebook group that has um, about 4,000 women in it at this point, almost 4,000 women. It's an amazing place for women. It is a safe space. It is full of more love and support than I ever imagined possible on the internet. (laughs) And um, a few months ago, we were talking about how there are some women in our group who are in really dangerous situations, some of them um, violent some of them um, emotionally violent, physically violent. And we were talking about like, how great would it be if we could create like a fund in the group where people can contribute to just like a reciprocal fund where we people can contribute to help other women, right? And so the moderators and I went back into our corner and we huddled and we talked about it. We did a lot of research and we talked about having it be a nonprofit. And, you know, unfortunately, none of us are at a place where we can start a nonprofit. That's a huge undertaking. Um, And it also costs a lot of money. And it was not something that I really had the bandwidth to take on. And Victoria Taylor, who is um, one of my um, favorite people, she's a former client, and she's really invested in this um, topic. She took this on. And so we it is a reciprocal fund that we created. And we have just launched it in the donation phase. So what this means is that people can donate, anyone can donate, we just launched it in the group, but I'm now launching it here. Um, we can people can donate. And it, the funds will go, there's going to be an application process where women can apply for aid. And, you know, ultimately, the more people that donate, the more money we have to help other women. The bottom line here is, um, you know, if you feel like 
you have gotten a lot out of this podcast. If you're in my Facebook group and you feel like you've gotten a lot out of my Facebook group and you want to give back in some way, this is the way that I request um, that you do it. Um, we are accepting donations from like $5 to $5,000. I don't care, right? Um, I w- we were doing the math and we were like, gosh, if 4,000 people are in my Facebook group um, and 40,000 40, people listen to this podcast every, every month, um, but if 4,000 people give commit to giving $10 a month, That's $40,000 that we have to help women every single month. And we want to help women from everything from, you know, getting, getting a down payment for an apartment so they can safely get out of a harmful situation, helping them, you know, put a retainer down for an attorney if they really need or they're in a high conflict situation and they need an attorney, but they don't have the money. All the ways that women are disempowered um, as they attempt to leave um, emotionally and physically violent relationships. We want to try and help um, offset that. So if this is something that you are interested in doing, we would be so fucking grateful. And the link is in the show notes for you to donate this money. Now, look, we didn't go the 50C3 route. We didn't set up a nonprofit. And so essentially, this is a trust. This is a reciprocal trust situation. If you know me at all, you know that this is where this money is going. I'm, I'm making zero money off of this. Victoria's making zero money off of this. We just want to help more women. That's all we want to do. Our, we are, we are as good as our word. And, you know, that's just kind of the, that's sort of where we're starting right now. Um, it may expand and that will be a hundred percent. We'll be transparent about that, but I just want to kind of, kind of address that. There's more information about this in the show notes. Click a link. Um, it's also in my Facebook group. There's a pinned announcement in the Facebook group. So you can um, watch a video that Victoria and I did about it. So this topic completely is in line with today's conversation with Leslie about domestic violence. So if you don't know Leslie, she is a New York Times bestselling author. She's a columnist for the Washington Post. She's a speaker on work-family balance and a successful corporate executive, and she is a domestic violence survivor. She's the author of four nonfiction books, the New York Times bestselling memoir, Crazy Love, which is about her domestic violence marriage. It's a, it's a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. The critically acclaimed anthology Mommy Wars, Stay at Home and Career Moms Face Off on Their Choices, Their Lives, Their Families, The Baby Chase, How Surrogacy is Transforming the American Family, and her latest memoir, which many, many of you have read and which um, we did a podcast episode about called The Naked Truth, which explores female sexuality, self-esteem, and dating after 50. Leslie is uh, a regular speaker at international women's conferences. Her 2012 TED Talk about domestic violence has been viewed by over 6 million people. And in 2014, she completed her second TED Talk exploring the ethics of global surrogacy. And she's my friend. (laughs) Um, And an active member of our Facebook group. So um, without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Leslie Morgan Steiner on her experience with domestic violence.
Leslie, thank you so much for coming back onto the podcast. We had a great conversation, God, a year ago or something, about your book, The Naked Truth, and about finding yourself, your sexuality after post-marriage, right? And we're going to have a little bit of a different conversation today. (laughs) Which is, it's, it's a different conversation, but it really is about the continuum of being a woman and being honest about what it means to be, you know, female in our world today. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. It's actually a hundred percent true. So you wrote a memoir called Crazy Love, which is one of the most sort of harrowing and yet like relatable and fascinating and interesting really books about your journey through with a, with a very severely violent marriage. Do you want to give us sort of the cliff notes on that? (laughs) I do actually, because it turned out to be one of the most transformational experiences of my life and not anything that I had thought would happen to me. I wasn't a little girl growing up saying, you know, I I want to meet the love of my life and have then have him hold loaded guns to my head. But that's what happened. I had just graduated from Harvard and I moved to New York City for my job at 17 Magazine in New York, which I was sure was the best job that you could possibly have on the planet. And I had not dated in college because I was just like dealing with myself and getting my act together. And so I started dating a lot when I got to New York City and I just felt really on top of the world. And like I was a young woman taking on New York and everything, adulthood. And I met this wonderful guy on the New York City subway. And He had also just graduated from an Ivy League school. He worked at a really impressive investment bank. And he was cute and funny and crazy about me. And rather quickly, I fell head over heels in love with him. And I'd never really been in love before. And I just fell like falling off a cliff. And as we got to know each other, I discovered that he had a really dark past he had been terribly physically abused as a little boy. And I, I just was really naive about abuse. And I didn't know what that meant. And it, the fact that he had overcome it and gone to this Ivy League school and to all appearances was completely together and kind and sensitive and gentlemanly. And he thought that what had happened to him was terrible and that anybody who hit a woman or child was awful. I just had more respect for him that he had tackled those demons You know, I just had a lot of respect for that. And I didn't know what a big red flag it was that he had been abused. And we had a fairy tale whirlwind romance and we got engaged. And then we moved to New England shortly before getting married. He convinced me to leave my job at 17. He left his investment bank. And I thought we were walking into this fairy tale life as a young married couple. But really, I was walking headfirst into a really carefully laid physical, financial, geographic, emotional trap disguised as love because he started abusing me um, five days before our wedding. And the first attack was really serious. He strangled me. And I know now how serious that is, that it's a very, somebody who was willing to strangle you right out of the, the, the barn is a very seriously disturbed person. But I didn't know that. And I just really thought that he had cold feet and that he was terrified of making a commitment to me because that's what the conventional wisdom was about men. It still is. And 
I, I thought I could love him through all of it. And so I married him five days later that I had 10 bruises on my neck that had just healed enough so that, that nobody noticed them. And I put on my mother's wedding dress and I stood up in Harvard's Memorial Church and I married him. And then he beat me twice more on our honeymoon. And for the next four years, my life was a, it went from a fairy tale to a nightmare. And I was this young Harvard graduate with this promising future in front of me and this great guy who was cute and charming and wonderful and behind closed doors. He was getting closer and closer to killing me every day. And it was the, the, the mountain of my life to have to climb to get out of that because I loved him, because I wanted to help him. I didn't want to tell anybody what he was doing because I knew he'd get in trouble. I was very protective of him as abuse victims often are. But I eventually was able to leave him, very fortunately, with a lot of help from my friends and my family and my greater community. The police, a divorce lawyer, many, many, many people had to help me. But I did it and I wasn't able to talk about it for about five years after the relationship ended. Um, as is really common with victims. It was such a trauma. I couldn't speak about it. But then eventually I wrote about it. I wrote the book Crazy Love and I did a TED talk on it um, and became a really outspoken advocate for what abuse really looks like, emotional and physical abuse, how common it is. It, it happens to men and women everywhere in every corner of our society, all religions, all education levels, all income levels, every school, every church, every neighborhood. It's everywhere in plain sight, but we just don't see it because we don't know what it looks like and we don't talk about it enough. So that's really become my life since then is I'm a domestic violence prevention advocate and I talk really openly about my abuse and what happened to me. And I will answer any question you or anybody has, because I think this is how we end abuse is by talking about it. Amen. Amen. Gosh, there's so many places I want to go with this. I mean, you know, one of the first things that that is very is striking, right? And I think I want to hammer this home is that you don't quote look like the woman that we think is the typical victim of domestic violence. And that's a fucking myth, right? I mean, and so why is it that we think that victims of domestic violence, well, that abusers look a certain way. They're, I don't know, rednecks, they, you know, and torn up wife beaters and the Stanley Kowalski kind of image, really, right? And then, and that women look, you know, again, look a certain way, that they are from lower income brackets, they're less educated, and here you are, a Harvard graduate. So why do we think, why do we think this? Well, there are a lot of reasons why we do. One is that women who are the vast majority of victims, but men too, are, are shamed into not talking about it. There's a lot of stigma and shame to being an abuse victim, similar to being a sexual assault victim. So our society is really quite dedicated to silencing victims and also to distancing ourselves from victims. We want deeply and passionately to believe that this doesn't happen in our families, in our communities, that it happens to people over there who are different from us because it's more comfortable that way and that we don't have to confront the very difficult societal changes that we need to make in order to end abuse. Also, the part of the stereotyping is a very sophisticated way of blaming victims. Mm -hmm. And what people, even really intelligent, thoughtful people will often tell you about domestic violence victims is that they are women who have no self-esteem, who are not very educated, who somehow enjoy the abuse, they're immigrants, they have 
too many children, that sort of thing. And it's, it's a way of saying that she wants it or deserves it because then you don't have to confront the really ugly truth that it is the most powerful people in our society, men, who are doing this to the weakest members of our society, women and children, the vast majority. Now, there there are men who are abused, and it happens in, in gay relationships and straight relationships that men are victims. Women can abuse too. But the majority of perpetrators are men. And we just don't want to face that in our society. I think you said in your TED Talk that it's 85%. 85%. Does that statistic still hold? Because that was That's a while still ago, holds. I think. Yeah. yeah. So 85% of abusers are men. Right. I just want to, so I mean, I just want to clarify that. Yeah. yeah. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people will, I think it's very important to acknowledge that men are victims too. And every time I speak, men come up to me and they confess that they've been abused and it's emotional abuse is also something that women do. So it's really widespread, but the vast majority of physical violence in our society is perpetrated by men. And this is part of that. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting and fascinating about this topic is that you didn't really know that what you were experiencing was, quote, domestic violence because, because of this othering, right? Because you don't look like it. You, and, and, and there's also a, sort of a, I think, a psychological desire to distance from that. Like, talk, talk about that. That you, I mean, I know you said that in your TED Talk, and, and we've talked about this before, that like, you didn't really know that that's what it was. So this is one of the most amazing things to me about this is that while I was being abused, one of the main reasons I couldn't ask for help is that I didn't know that I was being abused. And if you had come up to me the morning after one of the many times that my ex-husband held a loaded gun to my head and said, you know, Leslie, are you a battered wife? Are you an abuse victim? I would have been shocked and I would have said no. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I'm a strong, smart, independent woman who's really in love with a, a troubled man who I'm going to help because I'm. that's what I do. And that's what we're supposed to do as women in our society is help broken men. But I'm not an abuse victim. I'm not a victim. And I didn't know that what he was doing was abuse because I thought abuse was something that happened late at night when the guy was drunk and that he punched you in the face and kicked you. And my ex-husband did those things, but it was a lot more complicated than that. And also I loved him and I was blind to what he was doing. I saw him very much as like a troubled little boy who was lashing out because a lot of the stuff he did was so weird. He poured coffee grinds on my head. He pulled the key out of the car ignition as I drove down the road. He threw food all over the house. You know, it was like stuff that a tantrum four-year-old would do, not an adult male. And so it made it much easier to deny it. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that, you know, we, th- we, we th- do think that because most abusers are damaged children, right? Like they are, right. They're not just these mean nefarious, like there's, uh, I was talking to Beverly Engel recently and she was saying she was on the podcast and she said, you know, there are two types of abusers. There's they're deliberate abusers, like the dirty Johns of this world, right. Who are like, actually horrible humans. And then there's the rest of them who are sort of inadvertent abusers, but they're just acting out of their, from their childhood wounding. And that is like the trap, right? That's the trap that sucks us in because we want to help them. Like you said, we can help, we can nurture them. He doesn't mean to. It's just, it's it's so true. And I, I often say about my ex-husband that 
he, it was not his fault what he was doing to me because he was a victim too. He was a victim of horrific child abuse starting when he was four years old. So it wasn't his fault, but it was his responsibility to do something about it and to take responsibility for what he was doing. And it's just, it's such a complicated thing. And I think one of the key learnings from my experience is that intimacy is the trigger here. And by loving my ex-husband and trying to get close to him and trying to help him, I actually was triggering his abusive reactions because in his mind, anybody who got really close to him was a danger. And I think this is important to understand that we actually are the last people on earth who help the abusers. And that was one of the things that that convinced me to leave is when a, a domestic violence expert who had studied male batterers for all of his career told me that I, I would never be able to help him because I was the trigger, because in their minds, intimacy is dangerous. And I think this helps victims a lot to understand is that you can't help them. They have to help themselves. And I would also argue, Kate, that it's not just abusive men who are like broken children. I think almost everybody in our society is. I don't think there are real adults out there. And the only thing that I look for now in friends and partners is somebody who is responsible for their own trauma and their own damage and taking yes. it out on other people who, who really is, is looking the world in the face and saying, this is what happened to me and I'm going to take responsibility for it. And I'm not going to perpetrate this on anybody else, whether it's a loved one, children, employees, anybody else. That's what I respect today is true adulting. That, that, I'm going to put that in my dating profile. Can I do that? <laughs> good, good. I mean, I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I think it's absolutely a hundred percent brilliant. And I know that for me, I stayed in my emotionally abusive marriage for the same reasons. Like I just was like, I had so much compassion for his wounding. I had so much love and compassion for that child that had been broken and was so damaged. And I just wanted to nurture and love that, that part of him. Right. But as you said, anything getting close to that is a trigger and it's a response to, to shove away and either emotionally or physically violently. And it's a wonderful quality about you and about everybody who has that kind of big heart. That's what I look for in my friends. It's what I raise my children to be. But it's important to acknowledge that that makes us vulnerable when we have that much compassion and that much empathy. And I also would add to my list of red flags in potential partners is that any adult who wants you to feel sorry for him or her is trouble. Because mature adults don't want pity. And my ex-husband used pity. You know, pity feels a lot like love. It's very seductive. And he told me the story of how he'd been so abused and how women had betrayed him so much. And he was just really looking for that one good woman out there. And it sucked me in. And so I would say, if you are dating somebody or in a relationship with somebody and they regularly lose pity on you as a manipulative tool, that that is something you've got to take a very hard look at because I think it's a huge red flag. I think it's so important. I, it's, and it's so, it's so interesting, right? Cause I, you know, you have, you got, got into this relationship when you were 22, right? And here we are in our, our fifties, right? <laughs> Go fifties. Happy. Just joined you. Yep. <laughs> And when I, when I just like hearing you reflect that back, like men who use pity and women have betrayed me. I mean, for me now, it's just like, 
whoa, that is such a red flag and like run for the hills. But in our 20s, we don't we don't know that we are in many ways primed. And that doesn't mean that we are that this is our fault. Right. But for those of us who were raised to have some codependent tendencies, as many of us who are empathic and in that way are also codependent. Right. And so I think that it's two sides of the same coin in a sense. Right. It's the I think codependency is the is empathy on steroids almost. Right. 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 It really it really can be. And I also I think that we are socialized as women to get to feel that we are really strong and kind of fulfilling our mission as women. If we grow yes. up and take care of men in addition to children. And I, when I was a young woman meeting Connor, I, I felt so strong that I could take care of this man. And he was a really strong and macho guy. He had a black belt in karate and a black sa- sash in Kung Fu. He'd been a very serious state level weightlifter. And he was a Wall Street investment banker. He sort of checked all these boxes of a accomplished macho guy. And I thought, wow, and I'm taking care of him. I know his his vulnerabilities and he looks to me for protection. And it was a, a real high. And the, nothing in my life prepared me to see through that at that age. And I'm One of the things I love about being older is just how much wisdom we've accumulated that, you know, the hard way for sure. But now as a woman in my fifties, I I, I see through that so much more easily and I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't go back to being that naive, hopeful woman for anything, even as it was fun then in many ways, but I love being an older woman now and having the benefit of all, all that experience. Pretty great, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it narrows the it narrows the field. I always say, like, you know, my dating lane is real narrow, but you know, I'm not wasting time, right? I'm not wasting time with stuff. I'm really good at seeing red flags, even in dating profiles. <laughs> and now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today. Today's sponsor is Soberlink. Now, the Soberlink system is designed to make parenting time safer with real-time remote alcohol monitoring. Soberlink uniquely combines a breathalyzer with wireless connectivity and is the only system that includes facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting. Parents can submit a test anytime, anywhere, thanks to Soberlink's wireless technology, which delivers test results by text message or email to the concerned parties. Simplify co-parenting arrangements by using the system that provides transparency and proof of sobriety throughout the day. Flexible schedules combined with real-time delivery of results make Soberlink the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology. And for limited time, get $50 off your device by emailing info at soberlink.com and mentioning the Divorce Survival Guide. And now back to our show. I love that Rachel Louise Snyder did like all this research for her book, No Visible Bruises, and about who can help these people. What does it take to help them? And the research is pretty dismal about what it really, so, you know, it's, I just want to sort of caution people because we think like, well, okay, if I can't help him, but he gets into therapy, then he'll be okay. Mm -hmm. Right. If he does his own work and his own therapy, 
And I think the research has shown that that can be a decades long process and the effectiveness is like fair to middling, right? Right, right. I think that that's a very good point. I think just the fact that you and I are talking about abusers getting help is actually a huge step forward because most of the overall domestic violence movement has focused on women and children and protecting them. And that makes so much sense because it's a triage situation. We, you have to help the victims first, but we're never really going to end abuse unless we start focusing on perpetrators and them getting the counseling that they need. And it's hard work and it's complicated for many reasons because abusers have to be really honest about what they've done. They have to be honest that they are doing to other people exactly what was done to them as kids that they hated the most. And then you need skilled therapists and support groups and other perpetrators, sort of like a a 12-step model, really, to break through people's denial. So we've got a long way to go in this country and in other countries in terms of helping abusers and reducing their shame and stigma and getting them real help. But back to the original point that that we, the, the, the people who love them the most, are not the ones who are qualified to do that, that you can't rescue somebody else. They have to rescue themselves. And it can take decades, an entire lifetime of work. And I remember I had a really dear friend. First of all, the, the, the most important part of the, the tribe that got me out of the abusive relationship was all my female friends. I had many of them and they were all essential in helping extract me and help preventing me from going back. Because even after the final horrific beating where he, I was unconscious for hours and he was strangling me and breaking pictures over my head and kicking me, just horrific. Even after that, Kate, I still wanted to go back. And it was my friends who convinced me not to and prevented me from. And one of them said, let's imagine that five or 10 years from now, he's totally okay. Can you stick around for that long? And, you know, I was 27 and I said, you know what? I can't because I want kids and I want a career and I want life and I can't. I've got to put myself first. And I think that's a really good point to think about if you're on the fence about should I stay or should I go in an abusive relationship? You should think about what you have to give up and that what is going to cost you your dreams because your dreams matter, too. And when I made the ultimate decision to leave my ex-husband. It was during that horrific beating when I was on the floor and I, I was pretty sure he was going to kill me. And I heard this voice that said, you know, you have to choose, you have to choose him or you, and either one is okay. And I said, no, 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 I choose me. I, I'm more important. And I think every woman, every person on the planet has the right to pick themselves first. And you got to keep, take a really hard look at that. Who is more important? And you and I have to stand up for ourselves. There's no really good quality of life if you're not your own champion and your own best friend. And that's what I learned through my crazy love experience. And it's what I hope more than anything to pass on to anybody who's listening right now. It's so incredibly important. I think that as women, right, we're so conditioned to, from the beginning, first of all, I think we use our our nurturing and our caretaking as our currency in getting a guy, right? So a guy comes to us with his, you know, if, if a man like opens himself up vulnerably to us, right? We immediately jump into caretaker mode and that's our currency, right? Even if they, even if they don't, right? We use our caretaking and our nurturing as a currency to get them to feel safe enough to open up to us to be vulnerable, right? So we'll cook dinner or we'll play, so we'll do like the housekeeping. We'll just, we'll play the role. 
And then that continues throughout relationships and especially toxic relationships where that keeps us in a submissive role that keeps us nurturing, caretaking the kids, doing all of the emotional labor in the relationship. And the result of that is that we become willing to give over our entire selves until we're in this critical moment where we have to say, wait a minute, it is either him or me. And so many of us choose, continue to choose him. It's true. It's, it's, um, we undermine ourselves by buying into that stereotype that our value as women and as humans is our ability to caretake and be submissive. And I would also add to that, that most of us are raised to be very good fantasizers. Mm. It starts when you're just a little girl and people start asking you who you're going to marry when you grow up and you start watching the fairy tales and really buying into them. And so often we'll be with partners who are not being vulnerable, who are not really showing us their inner selves. And we make up a fantasy about what Uh that self is. And I always say to myself and to everybody else, reality is your friend. Face reality. What is he really doing for you? What is he really showing you? And do you want to be a caretaker without being taken care of? You know, I'm 55. And right now I'm in the first relationship of my life where a man takes care of me. My boyfriend now brings me coffee in the morning every day. I don't even get out of bed before I have coffee. And I it was inconceivable for me for most of my life that any man that would even occur to him to do something like that for me, a tiny thing like that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a feminist. I'm well-educated. I went to Harvard. I went to Wharton. I've had a great career. And I still never thought that a man would ever take care of me like that. And I think that's because of the socialization of our society and that we even say to people, the more successful you are as a woman, the less caretaking you deserve. And I just think that's really whack. I agree. <laughs> it is whack. I love the idea of like, what is he really showing you? Right. I want to go circle back to that point because I think it's so important, right? What is he really showing you? Not your fantasy and not all the reasons that he can't show you those things because of his wounding or whatever. And like, oh, I feel sad for him or, but like, what is he actually on a daily, but what is he doing? And it can be so confusing, Kate, because, you know, as you were saying earlier, abusers are not monsters for the right. most part. Right. And if they were, we we just we wouldn't fall in love with them. And if they hit us on the first date, there would be no second date. Right. They're complicated people with some really wonderful, charismatic, great qualities. And that's what makes it so confusing. And even my ex-husband, the day after he pushed me downstairs in our house, he was telling me how much he believed in me and what a great mom I was going to be one day and what a great writer I was going to be one day. And that is what why the book is called Crazy Love, because it's crazy. And you've got to black and white. It's never black and white. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not black and white. It's not. So you have to look at the good things as much as you look at the bad things. And that's what I'm trying to say here too. It's not that they're horrible people and we're idiots. It's that they're complicated, destructive people. And you've got to look at the destructive pieces of them and be really honest with yourself about what your capabilities are. In some ways, you know, the the rap on abuse victims is that we have no self-esteem. But actually, I'll tell you, in some ways, it was that I had too much. It was that I had an arrogance about me, that I could fix anything, that I could fix this guy, no problem. And I I couldn't have been more wrong about that. It, it was so above my pay grade 
to fix that man. And that's the reality that I had to face eventually. I, I love that. I think that is an important distinction, right? We are not, because because a lot of women will be like, well, it's not me because I'm confident, I'm successful, I'm all of these things, right? There is that sort of subversive, complicated, you know, it's not black and white. Nothing is ever black and white, right? And they can be great people in some, in some ways, right? And that, like you're saying, that is the comp, that is what's complicated. That's what makes it difficult. I will often say like, my ex-husband is like, can be the greatest guy in the world. He, when I had COVID, he was on my doorstep with all my medications. He was calling me every day. He buried my mom's dead cat. He like calls my mom like at least once a week to check in on her, make sure she's okay. Do you need groceries? Whatever, right? Great, great guy. And also, right? He has, there's another, there's this other side to him. And so it's not, you know, and he's not, he's not violent, but the emotional manipulation was pretty intense in our marriage. And I think, I think it's important that women understand that, right? They're, because as much as we say, I'm not the typical abuse victim, I'm not a victim. We also say like, no, but he's not, he's not whatever, <laughs> Right. You're right. It's true. It's sort of the stereotypes once again are beyond useless. They're actually really destructive because they blind us to the reality of what's going on. Yeah. And you know, I think it's also important to look at ourselves too. I mean, I buy into the philosophy that 100% of us do unhealthy things in relationships at times. Mm-hmm. And I bet that some of my ex-partners could say that I was manipulative too, that I presented as a broken woman who needed help. And I think it's important just to face that and to say, we're all on this journey to try to find the healthiest version of ourselves and the healthiest relationships that we can. And it's not something that we're taught as little kids. We don't teach it in our society. And it's something we all need to really dig in and look at it and work at. That's so important. I so agree with that. So, you know, one of the things you talk about is that the thing that really got you out and got you help was telling people and actually finally, like, essentially amassing a team of people who were going to help you and get you out and keep you safe. But I, there, I, there was a shift there. Imagine that there was a shift from secrecy, secrecy, secrecy. I can't in the secret shame that abuse victims carry to being able to tell. So what was that sort of valley between those two realities? So it's a really important question. And I I would clarify that I personally didn't feel ashamed that he was abusing me. I was always really clear that it was, I hadn't provoked it and that it was his issue. Okay, good. But the reason that I was keeping this a secret and frankly lying to my neighbors and family and friends was that I wanted to protect him. Mm -hmm. I knew that he'd get in a lot of trouble if people knew how horrible he was being to me behind closed doors. But what the thing that happened to me was that the people around me started holding up a mirror to me and showing me what I was losing. And in their own way, they broke the silence before I was able to. Mm. And I had two friends in particular who said to me separately, they said this a version of this. They said, you've really changed. And you've changed since you've been in this relationship with Connor and you don't seem happy and we're worried about you. We love you and we're worried. And 
it just shattered my denial very quickly because they were so kind and gentle about it. And one in particular said, do you know that your voice shakes when he's in the room and when he's not in the room, it doesn't. And it was just a fact that I couldn't deny. And it enabled me to start dismantling my own denial. And then the next step was for me to start talking to those two people about what was really happening and to say that he was beating me, that I was scared, that I loved him and didn't want to leave, couldn't leave because I loved him and wanted to help him. And the fact that they didn't abandon me in that particular trench was really important. They said, we love you. We understand. It's wrong what he's doing. You're in danger, but we're going to help you. And it was like they crawled into this dark pit with me. So ever after, when he was beating me, I knew, even though they weren't there with me, I knew that I had them and I wasn't alone and it broke the isolation. But the biggest and most empowering step that I did was when I really started openly talking about it. Um, The night of the final beating, I called the police for the first time ever. And they came right away and it was abundantly clear what had happened and they helped me. And then I went and filed a protective order. So I told more people, I told my family, I told my friends. When I got home from the police station that night, I spent the entire night picking up the phone again and again and waking up friends and saying, I've been lying to you. This is what he's been doing. Please help me. And they did universally. Everybody helped me. I think when you come out with that kind of truth, people really respond. And there were a few people who took his side and that sort of inevitably happens, but most people came to my defense and helped me. And by telling the truth, I I really set myself free. And it wasn't easy after that. It was very hard to stay left and to then to divorce him and to rebuild my life again. And, you know, I had suffered every kind of abuse. I was we had gone to Wharton Business School together, and I'd taken out all of his business school debt in my name because I was such right. a nice person. Right. So I had $100,000 in debt to pay off. You know, it was a mess, and it took a long time to get out of it. But I was alive, and I was okay, and I hadn't had children with him, thank God. And I was able to go on and build, rebuild my life. It's such an inspiration because you really are. You are a, I think, such a voice of of advocacy and education around this topic because it's, and it's so important that we all understand what it is and what it looks like and how it feels and how to get help and how to get out. Definitely. So (laughs) you're, you went from writing this book, Crazy Love, about this experience to writing um, your, your other book about having five boyfriends for a year following your second divorce. So How do you reconcile being the victim of a destructive relationship and the champion of relationships themselves as a force for healing? Like, wouldn't you want to just crawl into a hole and like not do that again? (laughs) And you know, there are a lot of abuse victims who feel like they never want to be in a relationship again. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. But for me, it's different. I have always been a girl and a woman who loves men. I love women too, but I just really am very pro guy. And I realized after I left the abusive relationship towards the end of my 20s that it wasn't that all men were bad and that all relationships were bad. It was that I had chosen the wrong one and ignored all the red flags. And that what I really needed to do was to learn how to trust myself again. And what ended up happening to me, fast forward 20 years after the end of my second marriage, and two decades of loving being a wife and just immersing myself in motherhood is that I realized I'd not only lost my marriage, but I had lost myself and that I needed to find myself again. And 
I knew I couldn't do it like on a diet of self-help and yoga that (laughs) I actually needed men to give back what men had taken from me. My abusive first marriage had taken a lot from me and my second marriage had taken a lot too, because I had become completely invisible to my husband. He didn't see me. He didn't care what I was doing. He wasn't interested in me sexually. He wasn't interested in me anyway. And I thought I'd lost all my value as a woman. And I tell you, it's a really a heck of a way to jumpstart your life is to have a rotating cast of gorgeous younger men crazy about you, which is what I had for a year. And I, the first one I met completely accidentally in the airport, and he was the most handsome guy I had ever even, I had ever kissed. We ended up having an, a wild tryst together. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> I need more of this. And <laughs> it was a lot what like a man does at 49 when he gets divorced. He goes out yeah. and he buys a sports car and he starts dressing younger and he dates five women. And the society goes, yay, yay, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. But because I was a woman doing it, society was like, wait, that's scandalous. You could get a book contract. You could get on the Today Show. And that's exactly what I ended up doing because it was so contrary to stereotypes. But then let's get back to the power, the destructive power of stereotypes. Stereotyping is what got me into that awful first marriage. And stereotyping is really dangerous for everybody, but especially for women. And there was no reason that in my late 40s and early 50s, I had to hang up my sexuality and my interest in men. And sure enough, after a while, I got really tired of it. It's just like eating cotton candy all day long. The men were cute. It was fun having sex with them. They listened to every word I said because I was this wiser, older woman. It was really, really gratifying. But ultimately, I decided that I wanted a, a real long-term intimate relationship. And that too took a long time to find, but I think I'm in it now. And I I have been for most of the last year. And it's a guy, an old family friend who I've known forever. And it's, it's really nice. So the journey continues, Kate. Yes, it does. I think we're going to get it all figured out and then we're going to be done. And that is not the way, what is like being a woman or a human that we keep on learning and growing and experimenting and exploring. So great. I love what I love the way you say that 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 you needed men to restore what what men had taken from you. I remember I I think I've told you this story, but that when I first got out of my marriage, I was I, you know I was oh God, I hadn't had sex in like three years. I was I had been told I was not a sexual being. All sorts of destructive things that had sort of made me feel like I was just a mom, but I was also invisible and nobody you know. And suddenly when I got out, people were like, you know, I found my vibrancy first of all. And then all these people were like, oh, wow, you're not just like soccer mom. You're, you're hot. Wait a minute. What? (laughs) And then I had, you know, a couple of, a couple of men who kind of made it their, their mission to make me feel hot and sexy again. And again, they, you know, these were not relationship opportunities, but they were self-esteem and confidence restoring opportunities and they were amazing and so healing, so, so incredibly healing healing. And priceless. And I, I think it's important to say that there's no reason to deny yourself that, you know, 19 year old me would have said, look, I'm a feminist. I don't need men. I don't want. And 55 year old me is like, you know what? I'm a feminist and I do need men because they're wonderful. Right. And I tell you, Kate, there is nothing that like rocks me the way when I am walking down the street and 
a guy leans out his window and says, Hey baby, I'd love to marry you. You know, it's like the same kind of thing that I used to hate when I was younger. Those men can't hurt me anymore because I'm powerful and I'm an adult woman, but I just, I love seeing that, that they're attracted to me and that I have something valuable. It makes me feel great. It's a kind of validation that I think is really empowering and is really pro-female and I know more about the true nature of feminism now. And and for me personally, not for every woman, but for me personally, it means being visible and having men see me. And there's a lot of power in invisibility if it's what you choose. Um, And a lot of older women get really into that. And I understand that. But just for me personally, I really want to be seen. It's part of who I am. Me too. Damn it. And thank God for those younger men. Man, who knew? I didn't even know what a MILF was. I didn't know that younger men liked older women. It's really very very eye-opening. And I wish more women talked about it because I've since writing the truth, I've connected with so many women who did the same thing that you and I did. Um, you know, that found this like great healing through men. And I just wish that we talked more about it because I think people would leave destructive relationships a lot faster with a lot more confidence if they knew that there's like this like endless supply of great men out there, especially if you take off your own blinders and see who's already there and don't look for a soulmate. I think that's where we get into a lot of treacherous territory is when we think there's one man out there who's going to fulfill us. I think that's unfair to ourselves, but it's also a lot of pressure to put on men. It's, it gives them too much power, but it also puts too much pressure on them and undermines our own. Absolutely. And we talk about this a lot in our Facebook group for those who are listening Um, who are in our Facebook group, Leslie is also in there. And uh, like every, like a couple times a month, someone will post something about like, Hey, like, I just kind of want to have sex. Is that okay? (laughs) I'm the first one up there saying, yes, yes, go. I love, I love your Facebook group. It is my favorite Facebook group. It's just such a empowered and interesting set of, of women. And I, even though I long ago decided to leave my marriage, I still get a lot out of being part of the discussions about what the, the the journey is all about. Yeah. Thank you. I love that you're in there and that you're active and that you're sort of passing, passing the wisdom on because it's, I mean, I think it's so important. And I also think it's really important for women to know, to take that time. I think it's really, it is such a, it's such a disempowering notion that we have to get out of our marriages and then we have to find another one, right? We have to find (laughs) another marriage because we are nothing without that. Right, right. And first of all, the last thing you should be doing when you get out of a marriage is getting into another serious relationship because you have not cleared out the clutter of your past. You are, it's all, it's all a bad idea, but you should be out there exploring yourself as a new, you know, as a sexual being, as an emotional being, as a, you know, cause a lot, you know, in, when you talk about it in, in the naked truth, not all of these relationships were purely sexual. There was, you had also connections with some of these people too. Well, like so many women, I, I'm not part of, of the eroticism of it is, is a true connection. I think that I've never had sex with anybody who it was just sex Um, There's always much more of a connection there and they were giving me something more. And I also, I think it's completely true what you're saying that the last thing you should do when you get out of a serious relationship is to get into another one. But what I don't understand is how much pressure you get, especially from other women to do it. As soon as news spread that my ex and I had split up the second husband, the father of my kids, 
there was a parade of people calling and wanting me to set me up with men who were just like my ex-husband. And I thought, what are you guys trying to do? Are you trying to tell me that I'm worthless without a guy like that? Like, I better get on it really fast before my half-life as a desirable woman expires. And it, it was just awful. And I wish that I'd had friends say, you know, instead of setting you up, <laughs> I'm going to tell you how gorgeous you are and how much I value you instead of trying to hook me up. But it's, it's terrible, too. It's also part of this is that we women, especially if we give up our careers to become full-time moms, we neglect our economic independence and we stop investing in ourselves. And so the, the terrible reality is that often you have to get married again because you you have to for financial reasons. And that's part of feminism that that I want to you know shout from the rooftops is invest in yourself and your economic independence and your education throughout every stage of your life. Because being alone is wonderful. It's the greatest gift that you can give yourself is becoming comfortable being alone, but you need to be able to support yourself financially and probably support your your kids too. And you've got to be able to do that as a woman on your own two feet. Amen. Preach sister. Preach. (laughs) (laughs) Leslie, where can people find you and read your books and follow along on your incredible journey? Well, first of all, they can find me via your Facebook group, Leslie Morgan Steinmark. And I'm on Facebook under that name, but then I, my Twitter and Instagram um, handles are at Leslie books. And then my website is lesliebooks.com. And my website has all of my books and lots of pictures and all of my media appearances, et cetera. And the, the, my, I've written four books all about the experience of being female in this country and this world today. And they're available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and independent bookstores and, and everywhere. And I love to hear from people too. My email is on my website and I have a lot of private one-on-one conversations with people who are getting out of abusive relationships or learning to date again. And I love the relationships I have via email and via social media. They're just as real to me as any other kind of relationship. So bring it on. Awesome. What a wonderful resource and how generous. That's really, I love it. I just adore you. I'm so happy you're in my world. Me too, Kate. Me too. Yeah, we're doing the same thing in very different ways. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's wonderful to see you so empowered and happy and also just helping so many other women. Yeah, you give a lot of yourself. And it's that part of you that got you in trouble in your marriage that is now a wonderful source of strength to people who really appreciate it and, and go on and then multiply it because all of those women that you help are out there helping other people as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Isn't that the truth? I love that. Thank you so much, Leslie. So appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.